Blog Talk Radio.
All right. Uh, tonight, uh, I'd like to get us started. We're going to talk about fire and first aid, uh, and these are subjects we covered in depth before, but I, I'd like to go back through them again for for obvious reasons, right? We're in the middle of a uh, of the global warming ice age, and uh, so I want to talk about the fire guarding skills. But before we get before we get started on that. I'd like to make sure that uh, folks remember that uh, we'd like to have them call in and thank their local crews for the jobs they're doing, their local Appleseed crews. You can do that, 347-308-8790. And uh, uh, and put out uh, thank yous. To your local crews, uh, let us know about upcoming events. Tell us about uh, after actions on stuff that you've just done. We'd like to hear about it. We'd like to hear about how things are going on over the rest of the nation in Appleseed. Uh, it it helps us to know that uh, that you had a good event. It helps us to know uh, maybe why you had a good event. Share some of the secrets that you have. <clears throat> on uh, uh, how you got people to come to the event, the promotions that you use, uh, any uh, new little teaching tricks that you use at an event. Uh, this is a great place to share. There's a lot of people listening to the show. And it's a great way to spread the information. So give us a call at 347-308-8790. And tell your local crew thanks. And remember, all the folks in Appleseed that are doing uh, the Appleseed Project work across the nation. Appleseed is a nationwide, all-volunteer, grassroots organization dedicated to teaching the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States today. The absolute best. Nobody does it better than what we do. And... Everybody is a volunteer. Nobody's getting paid uh, cash money, anyway, to do this. Uh, folks are doing it because they are uh, receiving uh, payback in other ways. Uh, they're receiving payback by knowing that their work is is helping to strengthen our nation. You know, I told you many times before that when we talk about our responsibility to a nation, that we have an open-ended, non-delegatable responsibility to safeguard the freedoms and liberties that we enjoy by virtue of living in this nation. So how are we going to do that? If you have someone that you're doing it, great. Uh, and I always encourage you guys, when you call in, uh, tell me, if you've got something else that you're doing besides uh, Appleseed, tell me what it is. Maybe I want to do it, too. Maybe the other people listening want to get involved and do it, too. But we're not going to know unless you tell us. Everybody has an obligation, an individual responsibility to safeguard the freedoms and liberties of this nation. <clears throat> not, by non-delegatable, I mean you can't say, 
I'm going to let somebody else do it because it, they're probably better at it than me. I don't have a lot of time. Uh, you can't pass it off. Only you can fulfill your obligations. Only you uh, can be responsible for your part in this. So what are you going to do? And a lot of us have decided that apple seed is a great way for us to plug in. It's a way that we can uh, very easily uh, plug in and do something to help strengthen our nation, help safeguard the freedom and liberties. You may not decide. You may decide to do something else. You may want to uh, to run for office or lobby your senators and congressmen, and that's that's great. That's perfect. But everybody has to do something, all right? And the Appleseed Project folks have decided uh, that at least for part of their obligation, that they are going to push the Appleseed mission forward. And while they're doing this, they are doing it uh, as volunteers. But everyone still likes to know that somebody is recognizing their efforts, right? You're not doing uh, hopefully you're doing this as part of your as part of the responsibility you feel to the nation, which means you don't need pay you know, you don't need anybody to tell you you're doing a great job you know i mean you you're gonna do it anyway whether whether anybody says anything whether anybody knows you're gonna do it anyway because it's part of your responsibilities it's part of your responsibilities and uh that doesn't mean though. <laughs> It doesn't feel good when somebody says, hey, you did a great job. So that's what we want to uh, give you guys a chance to do at the beginning of the show. 347-308-8790. And uh, we'll uh, shoot you right on there. All right. uh, And that goes for, like I said, it doesn't have to be just uh, telling folks they did a good job. Although why... Why wouldn't you, when you came on the the show, why wouldn't you say that? Why wouldn't you tell them that? Uh, You can also talk about uh, upcoming events or about uh, after action on events you've already had, all right? Or if there's something else going on, you want to get the information out, we always welcome guys uh, calling in and letting us know. That's why I pay for uh, 50 phone lines, all right? So you guys can call in and use them. And... uh, I hope that's what you're going to do tonight and each and every other night that we have the show is call in and, and utilize this ability to get information out. Okay, so we're going to talk about, uh, uh, and before we get started, let me let me tell my folks thanks and, uh, and then I appreciate the job that they're doing. Steve Raby and Joe Chambers. Uh, that is uh, sort of not appearing in this film and Sleepy Joe uh, have been uh, working at the uh, Coffin Cartridge Club, the College Station Texas uh, location uh, for a long time now and they've been doing the events there pretty much basically on their own and I really appreciate the the dedication and the effort these guys have put into it. They are great instructors. 
They're doing a great job. They're getting the information out, and they're they're there every month. Uh, doing this without pay, just like I said, just like everybody else who could be doing uh, something else. This is what they're doing, and uh, I'll thank them for that. And uh, and I want to let them know how much I appreciate what they're doing. <clears throat> All right, we've got uh, tonight, we've talked about fire starting <clears throat> quite a few times on the show. You know, we've gone through it over and over, but but some people are just listening to the show for the first time, or they're going to, and uh, and other folks need to be reminded that fire starting skills, it's just like rifle marksmanship. Having a rifle in your closet doesn't make you a rifleman, it just makes you a rifle owner. You're going to have to put some time and effort in uh, developing the skills uh, that are required in order for you to become a rifleman. And once you have developed those skills, you'll have to maintain them by continuing polish and hone and keep those skills current. And I don't have to tell you guys about that, about, uh, uh, about having to do that with rifle marksmanship, right, because most of you listening already know that. You know that you have to uh, you have to keep shooting uh, in order for you to keep these skills current. That's not any different with just about any type of skill that you have. And fire making skills are the same thing. You know, I, I am in the uh, put some chapstick on because. The cold weather has caused my lips to to burst open in multiple places. Uh, I work with a lot of folks who are preppers or uh, in the self-reliance movement, and uh, and a lot of these folks, uh, when we talk about fire skills and stuff like that, they'll they'll list the the things that they have: uh, flint and steel, fire sticks, fire pistons bow kits, uh, all of the the different ways to start a fire in primitive methods. <clears throat> but whenever I ask them, when's the last time you started a fire with them, uh, a lot of the guys just, uh, they kind of uh, get a little bit glassy-eyed, and they sit there and kind of think for a second, and they go, uh, it's been a while. Well, if it's been a while, then then those skills might be getting rusty. And here's the thing. If you are somewhere and you need uh, a fire and you need to use your primitive fire skills to do it, there's a, a really good chance that that it's not a good situation. Uh, and if it's not, that really, that means that you really are going to be needing to have that fire. Uh, that's not the time to practice or to, to learn how to start a fire. The time is right now, uh, whenever you, uh, 
have plenty of matches and uh, gas stoves and everything else. Uh, that's the time to learn is when you're not dependent on it. Now, I've seen that several of these wilderness shows uh, over the last uh, six months or so. Matter of fact, there was a a series that ran just recently that just drove me insane. It was called uh, uh, N- uh, Naked Survival or N- Naked Survival. I think I would name it. Anyway, this was a show about uh, about two folks, a guy and a girl, <clears throat> who were for some reason uh, they decided to make them naked. And they had to survive uh, in the wild for 21 days. And uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I wasn't a big fan of the show because, number one, I didn't understand. Uh, I didn't understand why they felt it was important for these folks to be naked, unless it was just so that people would watch them because they were naked. But trying to go over my head, how how you could possibly end up. In a survival situation, minus your clothes. I mean, there's things like uh, getting, uh, having aircraft break up at 300 miles an hour and ripping your clothes off or something like that, or uh, or being in a flood and having your clothes ripped off. I don't know. I guess there there are some possible ways that it could happen. But more than likely, you're you're not going to be butt naked uh, and survive, but, but these folks were. My point of this is that in almost every one of these shows, they had difficulty starting fire. And these are supposed to be people that are wilderness or outdoor uh, folks. They're supposed to be, uh, you know, very highly skilled in this. Well, it turns out that they they must have, that must have been the full uh, 10 to 20% that they were, that they were uh, padding on their resume because uh, none of them had uh, really good fire skills. <clears throat> And it turns out that that in almost every case, that was one of the most important things that they needed to have. Now, I think that one of the things I learned from that is if you have two people, and I think they could each bring one item with them to their survival situation. And uh, I think that, uh, and most of the people brought something like a, you know, large uh, survival type knife, uh, uh, a cooking pot or, you know, something like that. <clears throat> but uh, I don't remember seeing any of them bringing fire starting devices. And that is, I think that would be one of the most important things uh, that they could have on them other than uh, a knife. The... Uh, <clears throat> The folks had a very difficult time starting their fires, and it caused them a lot of grief. And like I said, these are people who are supposed to be skilled at it. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. If they were, it just kind of emphasizes the fact that even if you think you know how to do something like start a fire, it may not be as easy as you think. And if you've allowed your skills to become rusty, then you're putting yourself in a good bit of danger. It only takes a, a few minutes uh, that you can do it uh, once a week or twice a week or uh, in order for you to make sure that you're keeping your skills current. And so there, and 
And there are plenty of devices out there on the market. Uh, so let's talk about some of these things. First off, uh, we know that that fire is one of the five pillars of the survival uh, of the survival structure. And you have energy, shelter, and security. And energy, in this case, is going to be fire. Uh, in your most primitive form, it's going to be fire. Now, if you can find a, a uh, you know a diesel generator and stuff, and you can get things in going electrically, then that's perfect. That, that's part of your energy. But normally, it's not. Normally, if in a primitive uh, type of grid down situation, it's going to be fire. Fire is going to be your energy. So you need to make sure that you, in all of your kit and stuff like that, that you're thinking about the fact that you will need to create fire. And uh, I put a picture on the the show page of uh, uh, Tom Hanks uh, in the movie Castaway because I thought it was really I thought that was a really humorous part of the show was when he finally when he finally created fire and uh, and he was spreading around uh, proclaiming uh, his uh, his value as a fire starter now, I just touched a button on the phone, and uh, and it caused the other phone to ring. Uh, can uh, can somebody post into the chat if I uh, if I'm still on the air or not? I don't know if I actually if I cut my phone off or not <coughs> by accidentally touching one of the buttons on it. But if somebody can post in the chat that you can hear me, I'd appreciate that. And we all know I'm I'm still going out over the air. Or if uh it's okay. All right, I'm still on all right. <clears throat> anyway, that uh the Tom Hanks uh starting on the uh his campfire with his arms outstretched and uh, and yelling uh in a commanding voice, uh, I have created fire. Uh that that shows kind of uh, of how important uh, it is in a survival situation, and in all of your kits, you should be thinking about this. Now, of course, the very first uh, the first and easiest thing to have is something like uh, matches or a lighter. It's going to be the easiest thing for you to start a fire with is matches or a lighter. Uh, the different types of lighters they have are they're endless, and they've got all types of survival lighters that you can get now. Nice, uh, very nice, uh, uh, hardy uh, lighters, refillable that uh, uh, that you can use to start fires with. Matches, they've got uh, plenty of safety matches and camping matches that you can use, or you can create your own. Uh, 
one of the things that I've been doing is I buy the the big boxes, uh, the big wooden matches, and uh, they're the well, they're all now the uh, big uh, strike on box matches because they pop the uh, uh, the white piece. I believe that was picric acid that uh, was on the end of the match. I think that's right. <clears throat> anyway, I, I believe that they determined that that could be used uh, as a, an explosive and that they, they forbid it. And now we have just the, uh, the sulfur tip matches uh, and you have to strike on the box. Okay, that's, that's, that's fine. No problem with that. And, uh, I buy the boxes of matches like that, and then one of the things that I'll do is I'll take uh, paraffin, I'll melt the paraffin, you know, just a, a regular, uh, uh, like a food-grade paraffin, and uh, I'll coat the matches with that. Sometimes I'll take a, a container like a pill bottle, and uh, I'll pack it solid with matches, and then I'll pour enough paraffin in there uh, to cover that. Then I'll put the the striking part, I'll cut that up so that it fits inside the lid, uh, like multiple pieces of it. I don't have just one piece. I'll have uh, the whole, both sides of it cut up so that it fits inside there, and uh, uh, that will protect my matches from the weather. And the paraffin is actually flammable, so the paraffin will soak into the wood, and it will actually make the matches... uh, a bit more flammable. Now you got to be careful from uh, from soaking it in to the heads of the matches. So what I usually do is I'll I'll pour it in the container when it's really hot and a very uh, a very thin liquid. I'll pour it. I'll have all the matches inside the container with the heads uh, pointing up to the top. And I'll pour the paraffin in until it gets just below the heads. Now, I'll let the paraffin cool just a bit so it's not quite as uh, as a liquid. You can still pour it quite as much of a liquid. And then I'll finish pouring the rest of it so that it covers the heads. But I don't want it to, to be such a a, uh, uh, a movable liquid that it, that it penetrates the sulfur and makes them unlightable. Uh, <clears throat> You can take the matches, and I really like the matches because they, uh, you know, they have their own tinder with them, that wooden stick part. It's got the the tinder uh, on the match itself. All right, so you've got lighters, matches, and now uh, past those two, You've got uh, several other different types of things that you could use uh, to start a fire uh, in primitive fashion. Uh, you can use flint and steel. You can use the uh, the push rod type fire sticks. You can use uh, fire pistons, uh, bow drills, uh, hand drills. Uh, you can use uh, uh, a fire plow. Uh, there are uh, 
there are a lot of different methods that you can use to start a fire. But one thing that they all have in common is that they take a bit of practice and a bit of skill to create fire from them. Uh, just be, like I said earlier, just because you have a uh, flint and steel does not mean that you can uh, that you can create fire with it. It's going to take some practice. <clears throat> so, one of the things that I do is uh, we heat our house uh, with a fireplace. That's one of the ways that we heat our house. I've got uh, central air and stuff like that, but I, but the main thing I use is a fireplace because I've got plenty of wood here on the property and uh, the fireplace doesn't cost us anything to run. And uh, I use that opportunity uh, whenever I start the fire to uh, use my uh, uh, one of several things that I use uh, to start the fire in primitive means. Uh, the last few nights I've been using uh, flint and steel. The flint and steel for a minute because uh, there's a lot of different there are a lot of different flint and steels, and uh, the, the, the they all take a bit of practice to use, but uh, uh, one of the most important parts of starting a fire with flint and steel or uh, or really any of the methods is going to be is going to be to make sure that you have a good tinder bed for your ember or for your sparks because whenever you're using any of these uh, primitive fire making uh, skills. Our abilities are, it's not going to be like striking a match. You're going to end up with a small ember. And the ember, in order for it to create fire, it has to have, uh, I call it a bed. It has to have a bed uh, that you, where you can transfer the brand new, new created ember uh, to in order to get your fire started. And uh, that's the same thing with your flint and steel. Whenever I see people starting a fire, and listen, I don't care if it's uh, with a with a match or a lighter or or anything. The most important part of your fire, of starting a fire, is your fire prep, and that is making sure that that you have made an easy path for this fire to ignite. I mean. Listen, fire fire wants to be, fire wants to become. It just needs, uh, it, it just needs the, uh, a little help, and it will become. But you can't just take, and I don't care if you've got a lighter, you can't just take uh, a stack of uh, one-inch thick sticks and pile them up and expect to start a fire that way. Uh, first off, uh, what I always do is I always make sure that I look for the smallest type of flammable material I can get. And it's got to be uh, 
and you should be dry. And uh, that can be uh, maybe some type of dry grass, you know, very thin, dry grass. Uh, right now, there's a lot of the larger bladed grass, like Johnson grass, stuff like that, that's dead and still standing. And the leaves, uh, not the thick stem parts, but the leaves of the Johnson grass, uh, really make kind of a perfect tinder. Because you can break those uh, those long leaves off, and Johnson grass is kind of like a it's a tall grass. It's a tall, uh, stemmy grass uh, that you'll see you see it growing along the sides of uh, highways and stuff like that. And uh, I'll take and break off the long dry leaves, and they're very thin and nice and dry because they're not laying on the ground. They're they're usually standing up still, so they're kept air dry. And I'll take the leaves and crumble them up into my hand into a into a ball. And then I'll roll that ball around in my hand, you know, breaking the uh, the stem, the, the uh, grass blades, breaking them down further. So I keep rolling it around and rolling around until what I'm trying to get is almost like a powder. Not quite a powder, but, but right above a powder with these, with these blades of grass. I keep trying to break down the, the stems until I've got a very, very fine uh, pile of material. <clears throat> then you can take the, some of the other blades of grass and you don't have to break them down. You can keep them, uh, you know, as, as solid pieces. You don't need to break them to size to fit, but keep them as solid pieces. And then uh, find something else. Like there's a, a there's other there's plenty of other types of weeds that are very stemmy, and uh, you can and they're still standing up. They've been dead for you know a few weeks now, but they're still standing up. You can take those and break those weeds up into uh, tinder and and like miniature kindling. Now you get your bed ready. Now. If you're going to start it with something like a match or something, you can go ahead and build it. You know, you put that the very fine stuff down first. You put the the uh, the other weeds and stuff and grass blades on top of that. Then you take you start getting uh, thicker things like uh, uh, it can be the uh, the new growth. Uh, the very thin nougat leaves on things like uh, post oaks and stuff like that. Uh, you could use cedar bark. Uh, you could use any type of very fine, dry and dead uh, twigs, as long as they are very thin. I'm talking about uh, thin, like uh, pencil lead thin, uh, or even thinner. Now you put those down, and then. With each layer you put on, you're just going up just to the next thin thickness. Now the next layer will be, uh, you know, pencil lead to double pencil lead. Uh, the next layer above that will be uh, double pencil lead to triple pencil lead, and you'll keep building it up because you're making like a set of steps for the fire to climb, and you'll keep building that up all the way till you've got to uh, like one inch pieces and two inch pieces. Uh, uh, thick pieces of wood, and then if you're lighting with a match or a lighter, you can go ahead and light it and get it started, uh, and then you're going to stay right there uh, moderating the fire, 
and then you'll place the uh, larger sticks on as it's starting to burn. Now, if you are going to use one of the other methods, like uh, the flint and steel or the... Uh, all you're going to do is first is have the ember bed ready. Now, a lot of folks in their kits will do things like uh, keep cotton, cotton balls and stuff like that in their uh, their kits, their farming kits, because that's a great place to put an ember is in uh, the middle of a little ball of cotton. And uh, uh, some of the balls of cotton, you could uh, actually take uh, some of the stuff like... Uh, Oh, like uh, uh, petroleum jelly or something like that, maybe uh, massage it into them. But for the ember kits, you'll need a nice dry piece of cotton. And uh, if you don't have that, then crushing the blades of uh, grass up or whatever material you can get, you need to crush it as fine as possible and have a nice big uh, bed of it sitting there. That's what you're going to strike your flint and steel into. You're going to strike your flint and steel into that or you're going to take your uh, magnesium shavings and cut them and pile them into the, uh, uh, the middle of your bed and then strike like them. Uh, if you have a bow kit, then you're going to have the, the bow kit set up right there, right next to where you're going to have your fire and you'll have your ember bed sitting right there next to that so that once you've created the ember, you can immediately transfer it to just the two or three inches where, to where it needs to go into the ember bed to get it started. So preparation is the absolute key to building any fire. That's going to be your prep for the fire. That's the, that's the most important part of starting your fire. Now, I see folks in the uh, uh, chat room talking about standing dead cedar. That's that's perfect stuff to get uh, to use for your tinder. You can take the uh, the bark, the cedar bark, and you can pull thin, uh, soft, you know, very thin, soft pieces of that off on the outside and uh, like I said, roll it around in your hands until you've got a ball of almost like fur or hair fur uh, to catch your uh, your spark with. Uh, and uh, and you can use that for your ember bed. Now, once you've got your ember in the ember bed, before, you, before it goes anywhere else, you're going to actually get a flame going in the ember bed before you transfer it anywhere else. And uh, you'll do that by once you've got the ember sitting into the ember bed, you're going to gently blow on it so that the increased amount of oxygen to the ember is going to expand the uh, the burn of the ember. And you'll keep doing gently doing that <laughs> until you can coax it along into an open flame. Now, you'll have the ember in the ember bed uh, blowing on it. You'll take tiny, minute uh, fragments of your tinder and and let it kind of sprinkle down on top of the ember. You, you don't want to suffocate it. 
you always want to be able to see the glow of the ember uh, and not have it totally covered. But you're going to be placing the you know particles onto the ember and blowing until you can coax uh, an open flame from it. And once you've got the you've transformed the ember bed from the glowing ember into an open flame, then that will be transferred to your prepared fire, to your fire bed, right? Just like we talked about a while ago. You're going to have everything all ready so that that can be slid right into where it needs to go. I'm telling you guys, preparation is always going to be the most important part of this. If you uh, spend all the time to get you a glowing ember, you put it in the ember bed, you get you an open flame, and then you decide to, to, to now start building the fire on top of it, you may or may not be successful. Like I said, the preparation is the key. The fire wants to burn. It just needs a little bit of help. So you're going to do that by preparing a place for it to burn ahead of time. All right? Now, one of the other things I also uh, saw on these shows is that the the fires that were so important to them that they finally started uh, way late, sometimes days late, uh, even the folks that were in high rain probability er- uh, areas, uh, they didn't take any precautions against the fact that it might rain. I mean, it, it may well rain on you. It may well pour down. So what you're going to have to do is to make sure that you're prepared to uh, to shepherd your fire through a rain or through some rough weather. Now, there's several ways you can do that. If you have some kind of a tin can or something like that, you can certainly uh, place some coals in a tin can and, uh, and, and try and keep it out of the rain and gently feed it, uh, uh, you know, whatever kind of dried uh, things that you, could, that you can keep or, or put little tiny twigs in there, not directly on the coals, but uh, close to them so that they're drying that out before you actually lay it down onto the coals and, and keep feeding it that way. Uh, if possible, uh, you want to make sure that your fire, uh, if you're in a an area or a wet location or some someplace that you think it might get wet, try and get your fire off the ground. Uh, you know, build a circle of rocks, Put some uh, dirt into the middle and uh, build up a, uh, a fire pit so that your fire is not going to be completely drowned out by an inch of water. Because if you build some kind of a, uh, almost like a fire pit or a stove for this, then you can more easily protect it. And uh, you can also do things like uh, if you can if you can start a fire into the side of a uh, of a large branch or a or a log or something like that and then uh when the weather gets rough you can uh you can tilt the log so that the fire is burning up into it and it's protecting itself there are a lot of things you can do and you should be thinking about how you're going to do it uh, right when you're making the fire you should be thinking that that fire might be your life, your 
the one thing that's going to keep you alive. So you always need to think about protecting the fire. Now, if you're in a really cold uh, climate and snowing and stuff, you need to think about that when it, about fire placement, about where you're where you're building the fire. If you're if you're building a fire and you're under a nice cozy uh, uh, evergreen tree with a load of snow on it, and you're building that fire there, and something shakes that tree and you get uh, uh, five, ten, fifteen gallons of snow dumped under your fire, that may be the end of it. So you want to make sure that uh, that things that uh, chunks of snow can't fall into it, that it can be protected from rain, it can be protected from flood, and at the same time, considerate of the fact that just because you're trying to keep yourself alive, that does not give you a carte blanche or a or a license to start a fire which could possibly get out of control. Uh, just because you're you're trying to save your own life does not give you license to put other people's lives in danger. So at the same time you're trying to start your fire and protect your fire and save your fire, you have to be able to control the fire. Uh, and that means... Uh, Maybe not making as big a fire as you wanted to if you're uh, out in a prairie or if the wind is blowing. Uh, putting a wind block up on the fire, clearing out all flammable debris from around the fire, uh, and then having uh, uh, some method might escape from the fire. Maybe a homemade, uh, like a homemade type of broom or a bundle of, of uh, boughs that you can use to uh, to stomp out a fire, something like that. <clears throat> Uh, these are all things that you're going to have to think about and get used to doing. Like I said, the only real way to ensure that you have that you have a viable skill is to keep putting it to use. That means dragging out the gear, and 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 most of the stuff is pretty easy to use, uh, other than things like the bow kit and stuff like that. Even those are easy to use if you if you have gone out and you've been able to select the correct type of wood and stuff like that. It's, it's not that difficult, but that's usually not the case. Usually you don't get to go and select the perfect type of wood. And, and the other thing is, is you have to have done it. You can't just have read about it. Believe me, you have to have done it, and that usually means uh, uh, several hours of practice with it and a lot of uh, blisters and probably bruises because starting a fire with a uh, with a bow kit or with a hand drill is very, very, uh, it takes a long time, and uh, I don't think I've ever started a fire with a hand drill that I didn't get blistered up. You know, even knowing how to do it uh, and and doing it fairly often, you you, you you can still get blistered up real easily doing it. Uh, and starting a fire with a bow kit is uh, it's not difficult. 
uh, let me rephrase that. It is difficult. It's very difficult to do. Uh, the only thing that's going to make it easier is for you to have done it uh, enough times that you know what you're doing. It's still going to be difficult. And, and depending on where you are can make it easier or difficult, uh, more easier or more difficult, too. If you're in a uh, if you're in the high uh, the high desert and you can select uh, some of the wood that that you're going to use and you're using nice strong uh, dry wood, uh, it's going to be a lot easier than if you wash up on the shores of Panama and you try using some of the wood that you're getting out of the rainforest there. Uh, 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 the best thing would probably be to try and find some good dry driftwood and make your kit out of the driftwood because that will be, hopefully that will be drier and uh, and easier to use than anything you're going to cut out of the rainforest. <clears throat> but the only way you're going to figure this out is by doing it, all right? And, uh, you know, I'm not telling you you got to go out and store hand drills and do it, but I am telling you, that you better have some kind of a plan. You better have something figured out. That means uh, lighters and matches uh, stacked uh, and put away in your kit, in uh, your vehicles, uh, and then things like uh, flint and steel and the knowledge to use them, all right? Because, uh, and that's one of my, one of the, my favorite because uh, I live uh, in an area of Texas where chert is a very common rock, and uh, and steel uh, can be your uh, a knife that you have on you, or it can be a piece of metal that you might be able to find along a fence line, an old abandoned building. Uh, you know, an, an old man structure, an old man home or something like that. And uh, having the skill to use flint and steel is something that I would recommend that you develop. <clears throat> and and having uh, and taking the time to practice, all right? I'm going to keep saying that because it's important. The only way that you're going to uh, to master the skill is to practice it. No different than I told you earlier, than to have a shooting skill. You're going to have to practice it. Now, there's other things that I don't know how easy it would be to make. Uh, I, I, I've seen them made with modern equipment, you know, like uh, uh, blades and mills and stuff as a fire piston. Now, I think the fire piston is interesting just because, just because of the physics of how it works. And that is you're using uh, uh, you're using a uh, piston inside of another sleeve or shell, and you're rapidly compressing a small amount of air. Uh, and when you do this, your the compression of the air can bring the temperature inside the piston up to about 250 degrees. And that can light uh, a piece of tinder that uh, you have in the uh, on the end of the piston. I just think they're neat because of the, the physics of them. But you can certainly uh, buy 
fire pistons. Uh, you could make a fire piston. Well, I believe that the uh, one of the earliest uh, writings on it was uh, around 1745. Uh, but folks have been making them since then. I imagine you could... Uh, I don't know if you could make... I don't know that you could make one out in the wilderness. Uh, maybe... Uh, maybe you could, but I, I I don't know that you can. But you can certainly make one in, uh, uh, you know, on uh, here with modern equipment and have it uh, to take with you. And like I said, the way that works is you have a, a rod that fits inside a sleeve, and it's a pretty good fit, and you're going to compress the rod, you know, you're going to push the rod in. It's going to compress the oxygen. And the end of the rod that you're pushing in will have uh, like a notch in it where you can place some tinder. And when you make the compression, almost like striking a match, going to ignite that piece of tinder on the end of the rod. You're going to slide that out really quickly, and it's going to go into the ember bed that I was talking about earlier. All right? Uh, the... The rapid compression of the air, you know, in that small tight space, uh, like I said earlier, will bring you, will push the temperature all the way up to about 260 degrees uh, centigrade, which is about 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So the combustion of the piece of tinder is almost is almost instantaneous, like like lighting a match. And you can actually see this in a, a lot of the uh, the, the fire pins, pistons that they have made that are glass or plexiglass or something like that. You can actually see the the uh the whole thing. You can see the the tinder combust whenever the piston is pushed down and the air is rapidly compressed. <clears throat> uh, okay. As part of your fire kit, I would also recommend when like I said earlier, I'd also recommend that you carry at least a small amount of tinder. And this can be, uh, uh, like I said, you can have uh, uh, cotton balls or you can you can make your own tinder. Uh, you can make your own char cloth, right? Uh, char cloth is really nothing much more than, uh, than uh, like a section of, Fabric, and it's probably about the size of the uh, of the cleaning cloths, uh, you know, for a thirty out six, which is about two and a half inch square. Uh, as long as it's made out of some type of a vegetable fiber, like linen or cotton or jute, uh, then you can create char cloth, and the char cloth can be started. Uh, it can be turned into an ember with really just like a, a single spark. And uh, uh, the way that you'll, uh, the way that you can uh, can do this is you can take the the fabric that you're going to use. You can take the little swatches of it and uh, and get it tin, you know, a small tin, and uh, that little tin, uh, like you can use, uh, I've used the, uh, uh, 
uh, one of those lozenge uh, tins. Anyway, I've used those before. Secrets. My wife just told me secrets. Take those. It's a little tiny pinhole in it. You put your swatches inside that, and then you put that. You lay that on the coals, and uh, uh, it will charm the cloth. The cloth won't be able to burn because there's not enough oxygen inside this completely. Then you'll just keep that. You can even keep it uh, in that same sucrete container. I just take the the char cloth, uh, dump it out, take the sucrete container, and uh, take a uh, uh, not a Brillo pad, the other one, the scotch bite. Take the scotch bite, clean the clean the charred tin back off, and then pop it back in there. And then that will go inside a plastic bag, and uh, and that is part of some of the kits that I carry, the char cloth, because it lights very easily. It only takes a couple of little tiny sparks uh, to create uh, a nice big ember with that. Uh, some of the other stuff is there's plenty of commercial stuff. They've got uh, these little light campfire, these mini light campfire logs, and they've got these mini campfire logs now. They have a match head on them. Uh, uh, there are plenty of things that you can use to put in your gear and uh, uh, and make sure that all of your gear has something in it that you can use to start a fire with. Right? Because we want to make sure that all of our gear is going to contain uh, 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 items from each of the five pillars in order to create... Uh, uh, survivable situations for us. That means we're going to have water, food, energy, shelter, and security uh, in each of our kits in order to to make in order for us to manufacture a survivable uh, situation. <laughs> All right. I see there's another caller. That, uh, Sam, did you just talk to them? Uh, and uh, if you guys have, uh, uh, if you guys have techniques or ideas or stuff like that, then we'd certainly like for you to call in with it. Here, you know, we would like for you to share your uh, knowledge. Uh, with uh, everybody else here, all right? <clears throat> so if you got ideas, then uh, then call in and uh, share them with us. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> some of the folks are mentioning Jeremiah Johnson, uh, which I thought was a great thing. Uh, I certainly thought that the uh, the idea of digging the the pit out, building a fire in there or putting holes in there and then putting the dirt back over and sleeping on top of it. Certainly an excellent idea. The only thing is is you 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 have to you need to practice that too so that you know the right way to do it or right, so that you don't end up uh, scorched like uh, he did in the film. <clears throat> All right, uh Like I said, starting a fire could very well be 
the thing that decides the ability to start a fire. Kabiri will be the thing that decides whether or not you're going to survive in a situation, in an event. You need to give yourself every possible chance for survival, and the way you're going to do that is, number one, you're going to practice. You're going to do the best you can to ensure that you have some type of fire starting gear on you, on your, in your kit, uh, wherever you are, so you have the ability to make fire. That means that even if you don't smoke, uh, you're going to have matches or a lighter. Uh, if you're a woman, it's going to be in your purse. Uh, if you're a guy, it's going to be, maybe you're going to keep it on you anyway. I mean, even when I didn't smoke, uh, I carried uh, a lighter. It was small, fit in my pocket, and uh, who knows when you, even who knows when you're going to need one. So you're going to keep, you're going to make sure that you prep. You're going to have the ability to start a fire in your kit, on your person if possible. Then you're also going to develop the skills to start a fire in more primitive methods. That means you're going to... uh, you're going to uh, take some time when you're not doing anything uh, and you don't have anything, uh, you know, pressing to do, and you're going to say, all right, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to grab my flint and steel, and I'm going to start a fire with it, and then uh, I'm going to start another one with it. I'm going to start two or three fires today with the flint and steel, and. Uh, I'm going to start them all the way from nothing uh, into a, uh, a cooking-sized fire, all right? At least a cooking-sized fire. And uh, you're going to do that uh, two or three times in order to make sure that you are comfortable doing it. Now, once you've done that, you may want to pick uh, some other type. Like I said, there's there's a lot of other ways that... Uh, that you can mechanically start fires like that. There's uh, the fire bow. Uh, that means you can you'll have a a rod uh, that's going to twist into a socket hole that is the uh, that is made to to be a very close form fit for the end of the stick. It needs to be a nice straight stick. And you're going to have another piece of wood that has uh, kind of like the same kind of close, nice fit on it up on the top. And you'll have a uh, a long, more pliable uh, stick that has the ability to bend, but it's not uh, it's not a weak one. It's going to be fairly stiff. And there's some type of string, and uh, you're going to fashion that uh, the pliable stick into a bow, you're going to have a, uh, an actual curve on it with the string. That string will be uh, doubled around the rod that's going to be upright, and then you're going to have one end down into your uh, your ember hole, and that'll actually have like a little notch coming out of it, because what you'll need is you'll need to be able to get make that hot enough so that some of the material that you're spinning off while you're run the bow back and forth. You spun it off and, and you've created enough friction that you've created enough heat to ignite some of the small pieces uh, of the wood that's coming off. And then those are going to be put into uh, uh, the ember bed. 
So I would suggest with making a fire with the bow kit because you see it on the different uh, films and stuff like that, but I'm telling you, it's nowhere near as easy as you think. Uh, and then uh, there is the hand drill, which is same thing as the boat uh, fire starting method, except you don't have the bow. You just, for some reason, you can't make a bow uh, or something, and you'll just have to use your hand. That's where you take your hands, your two hands, you press them together, as if you were uh, making a clapping or maybe uh, making a uh, uh, putting your hands together as if they were in prayer with the rod pressed firmly between them, and then you're pushing your hands back and forth, almost like you would if you were warming your hands over a campfire. You know, you're pushing your hands back and forth. And you're going to be doing that back and forth motion as you are sliding your hand down the rod. And then you're going to move their hands back up to the top very quickly and repeat. And then back up to the top and repeat. You're going to keep doing that, created uh, enough heat to ignite uh, the the small pieces of wood that are coming off, and you can place that ember in the ember bed. Uh, or you can make the uh, the uh, the pop drill, which is uh, it's like uh, kind of a uh, a hybridization of the bow and hand drill. And that's where you have uh, you have the shaft coming down, but near, down near the bottom, you actually have a uh, like a counterweight down there, and then you've got a piece of wood with a hole in it that the rod can go through, and then uh, the pieces of string tie up to the top of the rod that's going through it. And what you're doing here is you're wrapping the string around the handle. Then as you're pushing down, it's unwrapping. But the counterweight down at the bottom, when it spins, it spins past the unwrapping cycle and spins up into another wrap cycle. And this is going to be a repeating process so that as you're pumping it up and down, that piece of wood with the strings tied to it, you're, as you're pumping it up and down, it's causing the shaft to spin back and forth at a pretty good rate, say uh, a little bit more prep, a little bit more skill than just the hand drill and the bow drill, okay? Uh, but you can Google... Uh, uh, pump drill for fire starting, uh, hand pump drill for fire starting. And you can see some pictures of it. You can figure out uh, it's not that difficult to make. Uh, and uh, I would practice uh, with that too. Uh, that's probably the one that I practice least with because uh, because I figured that if I could, if I had those materials. I would just have the bow drill, and I would just use it. But this is probably, the, the hand pump is probably one of the, I would say, the, the most physically easy ones uh, that you can do, right? Easier than the bow drill, certainly easier than the hand drill. <clears throat> okay, uh, if you have any questions, then give us a call. 
uh, if you have any questions or if you just want to uh, give us your tips or your uh, techniques on how you start a fire or how you prep for fire in your kit, what you keep with you if you carry a Zippo or a butane lighter or matches or whatever, uh, you can call in and let us know. We'll be glad to uh, to bring you on the air and let you talk about it. Uh, and uh, the uh, if they've got anything in here in uh, in the chat, I've got the old guy. He's talking about how to build a a fire on snow. And, and absolutely correct. It takes a it takes some preparation because obviously. If you try just building a fire on bare snow, your fire is just going to melt the snow, sink into it, and go out, all right? So you're going to have to have some uh, uh, some prep for it, and that means uh, building a, uh, putting some, uh, some sticks or logs down that you can build a fire up on top of it, all right? <clears throat> Okay, let's, uh, and if you want to call in with your, uh, uh, with your fire starting or fire prep tips, then, uh, we'll still be glad to take those, but let's move on now to, uh, yeah, I've got uh, Jimmy who's saying a gallon of gas is his prep. Uh, <laughs> You can use gas, I suppose. I'd be very careful with it. There's a lot of, uh, of uh, very exciting uh, YouTube videos of people using gas to start fires. <clears throat> All right, let's, uh, let's move on to uh, a discussion of first aid. So that's the other thing that we wanted to to talk about tonight, and that is making sure that you are uh, that you're staying up with your understanding that in a grid down situation it may very well be that you only have your yourself that you can depend on to provide first aid or, or medical aid to yourself or your family, to your loved ones, to, to anyone there around you. It could very well be the case. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you know, depending on what it is, if it's if it's a localized thing or if it's a temporary power outage or something like that, uh, it may just be a quick glitch in there in the uh, in between you and getting medical aid. Uh, you know, a lot of the almost all of the hospitals have <clears throat> some type of uh, generators that they keep going so that they can keep. Uh, power going to their gear and stuff like that. Uh, uh, anyway, regardless, uh, you're going to need to make sure that you have the ability to render first aid to yourself and uh, to your fellow man, to your loved ones, your family. So, have you thought about this and have you been working towards ensuring that you can do it? But we've talked about uh, uh, first aid uh, for self-reliance. We've talked about it quite a few times now. <clears throat> and we've had uh, a lot of different folks on to talk about it. We had uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy on uh, 
one evening to talk about survival medicine. And uh, here's the thing. Nobody can do it for you, right? You're going to have to make sure that that you are doing uh, or working on this yourself. Uh, even if you... I've had people tell me this before. I don't, I don't have to worry about that because my son's a doctor or my, my daughter's a nurse or something like that. That's great, but but if they're not around, you still have to know how to do this. So one of the first things I would suggest is make sure that you at least have the basics down. Make sure that you go to a uh, like a CPR class. Uh, they're usually put on free a couple of times a month by the folks in your city or your county, and uh, you can attend those to ensure that you know how to clear the airway and do chest compressions and uh, and how to apply the proper breaths, although now they're teaching you to to simply do chest compressions uh, rather than the breathing. Uh, you can still do the breathing. I mean, I, I would... Depending on depending on the situation, you can still do the breathing. But the best thing to do is go to a CPR course that uh, is being offered in your area. Get that out of the way. Get learn how to do that because uh, I've seen uh, probably three, maybe four situations uh, in the last uh, 20 years where the the person who was injured died not because their injuries uh, were so grievous that uh, they wouldn't be able to sustain them. They died because the the people they were unlucky enough to be injured around did not know how to perform CPR. And when, since they didn't know how to perform it and they didn't perform it, the uh, persons died, they expired because... Uh, there was no one to perform CPR on them, which is very sad because it's such a uh, it's such a common skill now, such an easy thing to learn. Very, and it's very simple that there shouldn't be any reason a person should die because uh, the person or persons uh, standing there watching them or attending to them when they're injured that they don't know how to do CPR. All right, so get your CPR, get it figured out, get it knocked out uh, so that you have the ability uh, to perform this very vital aid uh, in the event of that someone requires it. <clears throat> then you can keep expanding your knowledge. Uh, there's a lot of different things that it's good to know. Nobody expects you to need a medical degree, but you should know how to do some of the basic things, how to apply a bandage, how to apply uh, direct pressure to a wound in order to stop the bleeding, uh, how to clear the airway, uh, how to listen for, uh, you know, for uh, uh, a heartbeat or take a pulse uh, reading. <clears throat> these are very simple things. And most of these things, you can, you can learn them online now. Right, you can just Google them, and you can learn them online. And with a little bit of practice, you can get good at it. But uh, it, it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't take 
uh, a lot of money or anything else to to start yourself on your path of uh, becoming knowledgeable in these in these skills. All right. Uh, the next thing is making sure that you have the supplies uh, to treat uh, different injuries and stuff like that. Because uh, when I first started doing this about, I guess, about 15 or, 15 or 20 years ago, when I first started getting into the medical aspect of it, uh, I didn't have a, a whole lot of skills. I had the uh, uh, cross-training uh, as uh, a medic uh, from my days in Panama and uh, when I worked at the uh, uh, JOTC, the General Health Operations Training Center there in Panama, and got the cross-training from the medics, not because the Army was doing it, but because I asked them to, to do it, to, to give me the cross-training. Now, I couldn't do a lot of the stuff because... Uh, it wasn't legal for me to do, but I learned a lot of it. And then, of course, I I, I did do uh, quite a few things that uh, <clears throat> that you probably wouldn't normally do, and uh, and I knew how to do a lot of the uh, the first aid stuff. But I, I but I I certainly wasn't qualified as even like a uh, uh, like an LVN or RN and uh, Nonetheless, here was my philosophy at the time. I said, look, I'm going to go ahead and buy the bandages and some of the gear and the tools and stuff like that because uh, it's really pretty common to to have a neighbor and have somebody in your circle of friends that is going to know how to use the gear, uh, that's going to know how to... Uh, put a stitch in or is going to know how to uh, uh, splint broken bones, something like that. But unless they have the gear, unless they actually have the bandages and stuff like that, they're not going to be able to do anything, right? So that's why I went ahead and purchased uh, the gear because I figured, hey, you know, even if, at the very least, I'll have the gear here, and hopefully somebody will be able to do it. Because even a uh, even a veterinarian, you know, I mean, it may it may not sound great that uh, that you may end up being uh, worked on by a veterinarian, but it's certainly better than not being worked on by anybody, right? <clears throat> but they're not going to be able to do anything if they don't have the uh, the gear to do it. So make sure that you are uh, picking up at least the rudimentary uh, items that you're going to need for first aid. And, of course, the the stuff that you're going to need first are the things that you most often use. And those are things like uh, Band-Aids and uh, antibiotic ointments, uh, the uh, hydrocortisone creams, that you're making sure that you have a, uh, you know, a nice amount of these things that uh, that you can use if you have to. Uh, moleskin, uh, ace bandages, things like this that uh, which are the most likely things you're going to use, right? I mean, probably the, the least likely things for you to use would be things like uh, uh, sutures and 
uh, and splint making materials and stuff like that. You probably not, you probably won't need those all the time. Although I re- would recommend that as part of your ongoing, uh, uh, your ongoing program, that you acquire these things, all right? Because uh, who knows when you might eventually need them and. Uh, and one of the ways I get them is from, uh, like, from eBay. You know, you can buy things like uh, splint-making uh, gear for first aid. They've got this thing like Sam splints. Uh, they've even got uh, cast-making material for to make to be able to make a hard cast. Uh, they've got sutures and stuff like that. Now, these sutures uh, are going to be mainly... Uh, you can buy good expensive sutures, but even those are going to have an expiration date on them. It's probably not going to be that far ahead of when you buy it. And uh, the expiration dates are put on there. I talked to the companies about this. They're put on there uh, to safeguard the package. That means that if the package gets a reasonable amount of wear, then it's going to be uh, it's not it's no longer going to be viable. Uh, that is keeping the materials inside because uh, no longer going to keep them sterile by a certain date, right? That doesn't mean that it, it, the stuff in there goes bad because the folks that I spoke to at the company said, look, as long as this stuff is, you know, is kept in a cool, dry place up on the shelf, there's really no expiration date to it. The expiration date for most of these items is for the package. <clears throat> so, you can buy gear inexpensive that's uh, out of date and stuff like that. It's still going to be better having a good curved uh, triangular needle with uh, uh, 2.0 or 3.0 silk attached to it is always going to be better than using a leather needle with monofilament. Okay? Better uh, than the than the other. Uh, believe me, I've used the other two, and uh, I broke uh, three or four needles during the course of one sew-up on uh, on my hand because I couldn't make the straight needles curve enough. I had to put so much pressure on them to get them to curve that I kept breaking the needles uh, when I was sewing myself up. So a good curved, sharp, triangular needle is always going to be better than uh, than a, a straight one used for sewing up uh, furniture or something else. <clears throat> All right, now now that being said, don't jump straight to sewing yourself up. All right, anytime that you can, anytime you ever receive an injury, you're going to need to go to the person that is qualified to take care of that energy in you know, that uh, injury. I mean, going to a doctor or to a uh, uh, a uh, hospital emergency room. Don't practice on yourself because if you have not cleaned the wound out good or if you sew something up inside you, it may be an experience that you don't recover from. All right? I've seen, I've even seen uh, uh, doctors uh, almost kill each other uh, from doing stuff like uh, sewing each other up at the beach uh, with uh, fishing hooks and monofilament. 
and sewing something up into the wound and uh, ending up a couple of days later in the emergency room, uh, you know, getting emergency treatment for a wound that was getting ready to go gangrenous. So you're not doing this so that you can skip uh, regular treatment by qualified medical professionals. You're doing this so that if it's the last-ditch thing that you can do, if it's the only way uh, that you can that you can get treatment, that you're going to make it, uh, that you're going to do it yourself. That's, this is just a, a last-ditch thing, all right? And even then, don't jump straight to sewing yourself up, okay? Uh, do a little research on it because sewing yourself up isn't always the answer. You should have the ability to do it, which means having the gear there, having at least some rudimentary skills uh, in order to do so. But you should be. You should also, if you're going to do that, you should also make sure that you have the research that you've done the research on on when and when not to close wounds and the way to do it. Okay. All right. The other thing is bandages, uh, because uh, you should have a good assortment of boo boo bandages. You know the uh, the finger bandages and the the pads, the, with the elastic uh, stick them that you can put on you. And listen, you can get these uh, fairly inexpensively and in fairly large amounts by going to uh, a dollar store. And going to the dollar store and getting them there, you can buy, uh, I set aside a couple of bucks a week for bandages and stuff like that. And I bought a fairly large amount from the dollar stores. Uh, and I have now I've also added to the this I've added and I've talked to you guys just about this before. I've added to buying a uh, a package or two of the uh maxi pads uh once every other month. Uh because I can get forty eight of the maxi pads for about uh, three dollars and uh thirty three and forty cents. And uh the maxi pads are about as sterile as you're as you're going to hope for in a situation like this because they're they're manufactured and packaged by machines. They don't come into contact with uh, human hands until they're inside their packages. Uh, and they're inexpensive. Uh, they, I know a lot of you guys are buying the like the Israeli bandages and stuff like that, which is great. But those bandages are anywhere from seven to twelve dollars a piece. Uh, so you can't afford to. Uh, some of the wounds that you might have to treat, uh, they may take, uh, if you don't, if you can't get to a hospital or something, it may take uh, 12, 20, 40, 60 bandages to get them from when they happen to when you don't need a bandage anymore. It may take that many bandages. And uh, I doubt that uh, very many of you guys are going to have 60 or 70 Israeli bandages because they're just too expensive for that. All right? But you can have 60 or 70 of the Kotex maxi pads really for pretty cheap. When I'm talking about, uh, oh, about uh, 10 bucks will get you about, uh, uh, you know, 120 of them. <clears throat> and then I take them out of the uh, of that big thing and I reseal them uh, individually in plastic uh, uh, plastic sandwich bags and then those go 
inside the quart bags, and then uh, eventually I'll have like eight or nine in a in a one gallon container, plastic Ziploc container. So it'll be sealed several times over. And that's how they'll get stored away. And those are for uh, you know for caring for a wound uh, and and doing it cheaply and efficiently. All right. Uh, make sure that you're taking a look at your medical prep, that not that you just bought a a single blowout kit and uh, that goes with you in your in your shoot bag or whatever, and that's all you get. Make sure that you're trying to continually uh, improve and expand your ability uh, to to perform first aid on yourself and uh, on your fellow man. And that includes making sure that you have the gear to do it and making sure that you're becoming more knowledgeable at every point on how to do that, okay? Now, the last thing I want to talk about tonight is uh, is making sure that you are continually trying to add new locations uh, to your areas. And uh, there are several reasons for this. I know it's hard at times because uh, you, you don't just automatically... Uh, you know, have four or five red hats that just uh, show up in your area all of a sudden ready to take on the new location <clears throat> and uh, and run those events for you. <clears throat> but you should be on the constant lookout for, the, for new locations because maybe you can find a location that is a usable location that is closer uh, to a population center. Uh, we are still digging hard trying to find a range in the Houston area. Dallas has done really well. They've got a couple of good ranges up and running now in uh, the DFW area. And uh, we are still having a hard time getting San Antonio and Houston. And there's several reasons for this. I'm not going to go into them right now because... <coughs> Well, I will. I mean, they don't want to. Most of the folks don't want to give up uh, their weekends to an apple seed because that's when they are. Uh, that's when their clientele are coming in to, you know, to shoot. And uh, while we may provide uh, twenty-five or thirty folks on the firing line, they may get sixty during the day there. And uh, and we also require to be in control of whatever firing line we're on. And a lot of these ranges don't have they don't have the ability to keep lines. So that means that we would be basically coming in and closing down the range for the weekend. And uh, like I said, they said you know they they can't do it. They can't alienate their clientele. You know, if they had two ranges then maybe they would do it. But most of them don't. We just have a single range. And that means we would have to come in and close it down. And they're not willing to do that. But we keep looking because, you know, every now and then folks add ranges. Uh, somebody will open a new range. <clears throat> and then also at the same time, uh, ranges will change uh, board members or presidents or owners. So, you know, they, they're not always a static thing. 
uh, you know, they routinely will will get new owners or new board members or board presidents or stuff like that. And and just because you ask them once does not mean that, uh, that if they give you a no, does not mean that that is a forever no. I mean, it might be, uh, uh, they may be, you know, they may be more than willing to uh, uh, to say yes now. So don't uh, don't think it just because they've said another one time that that's the end of it. All right. Uh, continue to uh, to ask them on a regular basis. Uh, you know, to check with them and ask them on a regular basis. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I think that's going to be uh, about it uh, for the night. And uh, I want to thank the uh, – let me check and make sure we don't have anybody uh, that's uh, ready to call in. Okay. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening tonight. And uh, uh, one last thing I want to get out. I told you guys about the Freedom Palooza. Is, uh, I want to remind you guys that uh, Battle Road is uh, – hosting a five-day combat tracking course. Remember I had uh, John Hurth on the radio a couple weeks ago. Five-day combat tracking course, February 12th to the 16th. And we still have uh, two slots open for that. Uh, If you'd like to attend the course, uh, you can go to battleroadusa.com and uh, read the info there. It's going to be a fantastic course. It's a five-day course, and the course is designed to teach you uh, how to understand and read the sign of your quarry while providing a uh, a safe environment for your tracker in possibly hostile situations. Now, this doesn't just because just because of the name of it doesn't mean that you have to be deploying to Iraq or Afghanistan in order for this to do you any good. Right? Plenty of uh, there are plenty of situations where having the ability to uh, to follow signs or read signs and track someone uh, could be of a benefit to you, and uh, plenty of reasons why having that ability to do that and provide a safe environment for yourself and for your tracker could also be uh, a benefit to you or to your group. All right, that's February 12th to the 16th. Uh, we also have. Uh, Fighting shotgun courses coming up. We've got CHL courses coming up, and in uh, April, April 26th, the weekend after the uh, uh, April 19th uh, apple seed here, we're going to have the uh, our uh, running gun event. <clears throat> That's the four and a half mile looping trail with. Uh, I'm not sure it should have between eight and uh, nine shooting stations on it now for rifle and pistol. And uh, and then obstacles in between each of the stations that you'll have to negotiate. Now, this is nothing, nothing hard. This isn't designed to break you, to crush you. Uh, it's just designed to to put a little tension on you so that you can see how you and your gear have to work together 
in order for this to be successful. You have to have uh, you have to be developing your skills and your gear has to work in order for you to be successful in this. I talk to a lot of folks about their prep situation, and I always hear folks say things like, "Oh yeah, if uh, if something happens, I'm gonna I'm gonna wear uh, these boots, and uh, I'm gonna carry my rifle like this. I'm gonna carry my extra mags like this. I'm gonna wear this uh, killer backpack. Uh, I'm gonna have my my water is gonna be uh, you know in this and uh, and then I'll ask them. I go, well, have you ever have you ever had all this stuff on? Uh, no. Well, uh, have you ever have you ever you know walked even 100 meters in any of this stuff? Uh, nope. <laughs> so how do you know it's going to work? Here's my thoughts. I don't want to wait until <laughs> until the uh, the end of the world <clears throat> to to see if my gear is going to fit or work to see if anything that I'm wearing is going to work. I don't want to wait until my life or my family's life or something depends on it, right? I'd rather find out by going to a uh, a weekend event with a bunch of my really good friends and uh, and have, you know, kind of a little competition between myself and them, talk to them, do some shooting, see how it goes, and uh, and get a T-shirt and a meal along with it. That's what I would do because that's what I do. I I do it. So I invite you to do the same. Uh, you know, it's kind of fun. You're 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 going to different shooting stations, and we try to make uh, this year we're going to really try and do a lot to make the shooting stations uh, kind of as real as possible. You know, you got you see when you go on the YouTube stuff, you see the uh, I don't know, the yellow tape, and it just it looks very fabricated. We're going to try and make ours look a little bit more real, so it looks like a little bit more of a real situation, and uh, try and make it try and make it very interesting and entertaining while at the same time doing what it's meant to do, which is to test your skills and your gear, see, which, see if they're both working right. Is it, are your magazines uh, being carried the way that they need to be carried? Can you get to them quickly? Uh Whenever you uh, bend over, uh, does everything fall out of your ruck? Or, or one poor guy, whenever he, whenever he was going from one position to the next, and and I got to give him man points because he was shooting a lever action uh, rifle, long gun, and a uh, and a six shot uh, revolver wheel gun, and he was carrying all his ammunition uh, loose, a couple hundred rounds loose in a, uh, like a drop bag on his hip. <clears throat> but when he was doing his movement and stuff and he bent over a couple of times for uh, for part of the thing, he was dumping uh, ammunition out everywhere. So he was learning how that didn't work. I told you, uh, I think, the last time after the run, that I certainly learned that uh carry as much weight as I thought I could on my belt because... Uh, you know, if you carry uh, uh, 150 rounds or 200 rounds of ammunition on your belt, uh, and you don't have a you don't have a way to cinch it down really good, then it's going to cause your pants to sag down. And when they sag down, your thighs start rubbing together, 
uh, you know, you're you're going to get chafed, or you're going to have to do the last uh, three miles with your hand holding the crotch of your pants up. So you learn something every time you do something like this, and uh, and I always learn something, and you will too. Uh, don't wait till don't wait till there is some reason that you have to put this gear on and move in it for you to figure out if it's going to work or not. All right, come visit with us, April uh, 26th. Uh, we'll all hang out together. Uh, I think we're going to have uh, some speakers that are going to be coming. I imagine we're going to have some gear tables. Uh, if you want to, if you're a vendor and you want to come and be a vendor, then uh, get a hold of Mark or myself. And we'll be glad to talk to you about that. Uh, come and uh, spend the day with us. Now we we'll also have uh, we we'll also offer folks uh, the ability to run the event for free if they come a day early and they run it on Friday with the rest of the uh, ROs, and then they help run a station on Saturday. That way, you don't have to pay. We'll we'll waive your uh, entrance fees. And you'll get uh, you'll still get a shirt and a meal, but you'll just instead of running the event on Saturday with everybody else, you can run it on Friday with the rest of the staff, and then on Saturday you'll work one of these stations. All right. So contact Mark or myself for that too. We'll get you uh, we'll get you set up for that if you'd like to come, but you don't want to uh, you don't want to uh, to pay the interest fee, and you're you're willing to stay a day and uh, or come early a day and uh, work. All right. Uh, I want to thank Sam uh, for being here every time I am. Uh, everybody, stay warm tonight, and uh, we'll see you back this uh, next week at uh, uh, the same time, 7 p.m. Central. All right? Take care. God bless and keep you all, all right?
Oh! 